You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi everybody, and welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. So much to get you up to speed about, just some interesting miscellaneous happenings in the world of music and just pop culture entertainment. So let's get into it. Story 1. Rappers in Shanghai have turned to grocery shopping as their topic. Primarily, who's gotten famous doing this are three different rappers from Shanghai, Cat12, PJ, and Kiso. And they came up with a rap called Grocery Shopping, really to help blow off steam. Because Shanghai currently is one of the parts of China struggling the most with the current Omicron wave. The city has had two parts. One part going out or allowed to leave their homes Monday through Thursday. Then the other group can exit for certain tasks Friday through Sunday. So not only do they have that lockdown and frustration with it, but compounded frustrations because of out of the blue protocol changes. So like in the USA when we had kind of lockdowns, not compared to some countries at all, but anyway, we would typically get a heads up. Hey, starting at this time, here are the restrictions, and they will be lifted probably by blank. Whereas in Shanghai, it's hey, stop, drop, and shut down exactly where you are. I mean, there was this viral story of a couple who got stuck in an extended blind date because they really mean drop everything this second. So naturally, a lot of pent-up frustration among 26 million residents. So creativity has been blossoming in some ways as a coping mechanism to blow off steam. And that's why they came up with the rap, Grocery Shopping, which uses a very specific Shanghai dialect in references. I think my favorite line, just because it's quite a summary, is Set your alarm, wake up, food fight. Not just about frustrations with lockdowns, but with grocery shopping, with panic buying, Black Friday sale type conditions trying to buy, limited items, moments of temporary freedom that feel like they get taken away right away, lawn PCR test lines. They cover a lot of frustrations in this one song and have gained a ton of fame for it. In Singapore, an author has created what he calls a multi-sensory book experience. Suyash Dasgupta has a book out called Chosen, and one of the characters sings two songs, Chosen and Till My Last Breath. These hip-hop songs are actually made. They were made and produced and brought to life with Baz Angelov, a rapper, and this producer, Combat, with a K. This writer actually just got Chosen published this past January, so the 17-year-old not just created a book and published it, but created two songs to complement the story and really bring it to life. He said one of his goals is to really make reading more exciting for people, which I love so much because if you've heard past episodes of my show, particularly BT Study Guides, you know how adamantly I truly believe if you don't like reading, you just haven't found the right book for you yet. Everyone could love reading if they found the right books. I truly just love reading so much. Anyway, so he wants to encourage maybe check out the music and then it'll pique your curiosity to check out the book or vice versa. It's also an avenue where he seeks to highlight taboo topics like male mental health. And by covering serious issues via two different mediums, it helps reach different people. 
If hip-hop songs speak to you, great. If they don't, maybe the book will, or vice versa. So you can get your message across in multiple ways. Just a very cool idea, and a successful one, because as of recording time, those songs have surpassed 30,000 Spotify streams. Our next story is about a company called Reassured. They compiled data on the most popular first dance songs at weddings. Before I share the top 10, for all you fellow nerdy sociology type people or statistician type people who want to look at the methods here, they analyzed nearly a thousand playlists this past February and came up with this list. So comprehensive, no, but representative, maybe not, but still a vast amount of wedding playlists that led them to this conclusion. And you could really dig into the numbers and poke holes in it or validate their argument, whatever. Assess for yourself. I will link to the study on my site, as always. But it's really interesting, nevertheless, what the top 10 ended up being. Number 10, Perfect Duet by Ed Sheeran and Beyonce. Number 9, Your Song by Elton John. 8, Can't Help Fallin' in Love by Haley Reinhardt. 7, You Are the Best Thing by Ray LaMontagne. 6, Say You Won't Let Go by James Arthur. 5, Can't Help Fallin' in Love by Elvis. 4, At Last by Etta James. 3, All of Me by John Legend. 2, Perfect by Ed Sheeran. And 1, Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. Honestly, the only major surprise to me was Haley Reinhardt's Can't Help Fallin' in Love. That was it. But let me know what you think. That's your question of the day. You can reply actually right through Spotify if that's where you're listening. Otherwise, just let me know on socials. I'm curious what your first dance song was or what will it be or what what's the dream song? What do you think would be perfect? Or just tell me if this list is good or roasted. Whatever. If you want a Disney-themed wedding party, this next story might interest you. Minnie Mouse's album dropped. Yep, a set of Disney classics was remixed. Those songs were turned into a series of lo-fi hip-hop instrumentals. The goal of this playlist, curated by, quote, Minnie Mouse herself, is to aid in concentration, relaxation. Basically, your study partner can be Minnie Mouse's hip-hop album. The official press release for it says, quote, Disney and Minnie Mouse are a natural fit with lo-fi, especially with Minnie's interests in creativity, music, and wellness, leaning into lo-fi's penchant for self-expression and its calming, meditative properties. What attracted us to lo-fi is the ability to reimagine our songs in a completely new way that combines the soothing benefits of lo-fi with the wonder and nostalgia that Disney has to offer. Lo-fi and Disney are both a great source of comfort, so the two make for a perfect match. If digital characters releasing their own music interests you, you will be interested by my next story, which I'm basically combining a bunch of stories in one, but lots of updates on the CGI artist's metaverse front. Digital celebrities have really hit their stride, especially in Asia. A South Korean company called Sita Studio X recently signed a contract with Rosie, R-O-Z-Y, a 22-year-old virtual model and singer, who they also hope to turn into a future virtual movie and TV star, I guess via hologram, CGI inserting into scenes? Unclear. She has signed eight different contracts already and over 100 sponsorship deals. She can work really fast because she's virtual. She can be anywhere in the world in an instant and obviously doesn't have to sleep, abide by labor laws, etc. 
she's suspected to be earning about $854,000 a year and has already gained over 60,000 followers on Instagram. More of my thoughts on this trend, by the way, are coming at the end of the segment, so hold on, let me just finish the news. A subsidiary of YG Entertainment, one of the big K-pop companies, called YGK+, has also signed a virtual star, Han Yua. This virtual singer and model was actually created by Giant Step, a company, interestingly, that HYBE has invested in. HYBE has actually invested 4 billion won in Giant Step, who created Yua. Meanwhile, virtual artist Kai, not the Kai from EXO, very different character, had an in-game Roblox concert, basically guiding players and helping design virtual concerts and even produce music through the game. A Roblox game specifically called Splash raised over $27 million recently and then hosted Kai as their special guest. Prada, to promote their new perfume, decided to just create a model. So they created Candy, the name of the perfume and the influencer who will now promote it. In Hong Kong, a startup called Pantheon Labs created four different AI characters to promote a new Huawei laptop. The four are, I believe, Yuna or Luna, Noelle, Mavis, and Priscilla, but their names are full of characters like exclamation point, dollar sign, at symbol, etc. If you go online and vote for which of the four AI characters who each have their own distinct personalities, you are entered into a giveaway for a free Huawei smartphone. So they promote their corresponding laptop while they enter you in a giveaway for their smartphone and get you invested in the storytelling via these AI stars. Bambium has actually been doing some promo alongside an AI model lately. Aelin is part of his AIS 5G promo. Michaela, who is still, I would argue, one of the most successful digital influencers yet, has been making bank, and her company is really next level now. Their website went from a super, super vague, basic Google page to a brand new site, clear image. They're done with the evasive privacy focus, the mystery of their identity. That's not part of their marketing anymore. Broad is a real company now, improving it, and were just acquired by a company called Dapper Labs. Michaela has been working on music as well as ad campaigns, but also, naturally, NFTs. One of those became the most expensive CGI character NFT for 2021. It sold for 159.5 ETH, equivalent of about 82,000 bucks. So my thoughts about this. First of all, I did a whole senior project on this. My big capstone project was about the worlds of virtual characters, famous virtual social media influencers, singers, etc. A huge quantitative and qualitative deep dive, interviews, content coding analysis, all sorts of stuff to really investigate from every angle this trend and its implications. You can read that research on 17karatkpop.weebly.com, click the More tab, and in the drop-down menu, click Research. You could also go to virtualhumans.org, look for Hope, you'll find my work there. And I did dive into the findings on some past episodes of How to Stand. I did an episode called Miku Holograms in a Redefining of Reality, so go type that in to find it. You could also check out the episodes called Miku, Michaela, and more, and if I could turn back time, if I could find a wavy. 
For those who did not know about me previously going on and on about this topic, I will just reiterate that I have really, after really getting into the research of it, grown to admire this trend more and been less wary of it because a lot of my concerns just were not showing up in the data. My concerns just weren't founded once I got into this. At first, it's natural to have concerns about the ethics of doing this, but concerning cases I learned about were not as prevalent as I had expected. For example, I worried that CGI stars would further compound unattainable beauty standards in society. But I found the opposite. Though a lot of digital stars, their creators intentionally will give them pit stains or acne to make them look more realistic, but also to make them look natural and like it's okay to be yourself. And I was very surprised at the diversity of the virtual characters as well. Then there are concerns, of course, that these models are taking the role of real people. But through my interviews, it sounds like there's such a passionate, tech-focused, interesting team of real artists who work on this stuff. Fashion designers for their digital clothes, video game developers. Those types of creative people put their all into these characters like it is a movie or something. It's a unique creative outlet, so it's not like this money is just going to a virtual character. This money goes to the artists who helped bring that character to life. There is also a concern with a lack of transparency, like the ethics of promoting products with digital characters who can skirt advertisement rules that humans must follow, or who can dupe people, leave them feeling duped when they find out they bought a product that a person didn't actually promote. Maybe they look so realistic you don't realize a robot is telling you to buy something. But actually, I found that more often than not, these digital stars overtly tell the audience they are digital. That has actually seemed to increase since I did my research a couple years ago. More of them are becoming pretty open and blatant about, hey, we're not trying to trick anyone here. This is not a real person. That disclaimer actually became a part of Michaela's identity. She actually went from being very evasive about questions about if she was even a real person or not. They kept the guessing game going, just like when the company was super evasive about who the heck they were and what they were up to. But then, eventually she got really open about her being a robot, and then they created this whole unique backstory about her dawning on her that she was a robot and she had never known, and now she's looking through her flash drives, traveling to past memories, realizing what memories her creators had planted in her. It became part of the story. And now she jokes about it all the time, about being a robot, about every year on her birthday, turning 19 again, things like that. I do still think, to be clear, it's always best, especially if you're going to model and sell stuff, to be honest from the get-go, and don't trick people and then make it part of the marketing shtick. That is what happened with Rosie, kind of. She debuted with music in August, but was not confirmed to be virtual until December. What I do want to highlight, though, that still concerns me, why some people might want to work with them. Why certain companies choose virtual characters. Because I worry sometimes about the precedent that sets for the companies who are not broad, who are not doing this for just solely creative reasons. 
but are doing it for more nefarious purposes, maybe. For example, we've talked about in many episodes of Stay Tuned at this point that China's really cracking down on celebrity behavior, really trying to get rid of stan culture there saying it's too much, it's obsessive, all kind of, I think, frankly, a distraction from certain allegations and stuff and bigger cultural shifts that could happen if they stayed the focus of the news, but I digress. At this moment where they're really pouncing on celebrities in that culture, it spares them headaches to just work with virtual characters who certainly won't go against their idea of what you should say and do, what your value should be. You don't have to worry about them going against the government's moral code or whatever. There are rules for what to say and do if you control them entirely. Over 1,600 Chinese companies actually applied for metaverse-related trademarks by the end of 2021. So the current amount of trademarks filed for metaverse-related creations, intellectual property, is in the tens of thousands. I will link to some really interesting related survey data from the drum about this on my site. They claim, quote, of the 80% of Chinese netizens following online celebrities, over 60% follow virtual idols. Virtual influencers have struck a chord with young Chinese consumers, with interaction rates often three times higher than their real counterparts. The report goes on to predict, quote, by 2025, More than 3% of Chinese consumers will have a virtual identity in the metaverse themselves. China's actually been, in some respects, ahead of the curve with virtual celebrities. Back in 2019, this Chinese pianist, Lang Lang, performed with a virtual star beside her via hologram. And of course, we've talked at length about Miku, who I frankly am a fan of and adore, who has performed via hologram all over the world, even for Lady Gaga. This data to me is interesting for a couple of reasons. One being, I think, this rise in interest in virtual stars, to me, is probably very geography-specific. Because in the USA, for example, if celebrities are silent on social issues, quote-unquote controversial things, they can get scorned for that. Like, why aren't you using your platform? Whereas in other countries like China, celebrities are not supposed to do that. And if you do, that's the cause of the scorn. So this virtual replacement for problematic people, I guess you could say, the reactions might differ based on culture. But then again, Miku toured here, so it's not like there's zero appetite here for this virtual stuff too, but maybe more of a supplement than a replacement. Another concern that has been brought up that I didn't really think much about until reading this piece that I will link to on my site is with Aspa's group, where they each have their own virtual alter ego, What happens to them when they end their SM Entertainment contracts? Do the virtual versions of ESPA members, are they still owned by SM Entertainment? So can they legally use ESPA members' likeness on products and stuff and fully profit without ESPA? Because virtual characters, the law doesn't mention them as these labor laws applying to them, as these copyright laws applying to them. There are also concerns with how the ESPA avatar characters are just one example of a trend where it seems like when you digify something, it is immediately more sexualized. It caricatures yourself in some ways, and so that can be frustrating too. It can also lean into super gendered stereotypes about how your character will dress and behave. It also might give some creeps a sense that they have more power to deepfake and twist and distort and edit members' images if they have that sense of, oh, this is disconnected from who you are. 
So I'm not doing a crime by posing as you here or here or putting your face in this specific picture or video. I'm not defaming you. You can't sue me for it. Maybe I'm defaming this alter ego, but that's not you. They may have a sense of psychologically free reign, more freedom to do that without fearing punishment. The first K-pop girl group entirely comprised of AI characters is here. An 11-member group called Eternity. They look very, very realistic, but they are all AI. Created by this AI company, Pulse9. Eternity have this K-pop music video universe being set up, and they all come from this planet called AIAN, AN I guess, and they're all alien creatures. The group was actually created by 101 AI options put on the internet that people could vote for, and their favorites entered the group. This was a marketing win. This strategy led to a lot of viral chatter among netizens for this group. I feel conflicted about this because, again, I think I'm more forgiving of and think more positively of this trend than most people. I'm actually concerned with that aspect. I think this virtual group concept is fine, is kind of cool, but I also specifically take issue with the voting element. Because if that becomes a thing that really reinforces stereotypes about beauty and the narrow definitions of beauty, obviously the most conventionally attractive were the chosen ones. So I just have concern with that being a thing. I also think with K-pop, a big part of the appeal is the in-person fan meetings and other special opportunities to connect with the stars. And although the creator has said the girl group Eternity does plan to appear virtually via holograms or something at in-person events for fans to meet them at, it's not the same. You can't hug the hologram, you know? So I don't know how much this will appeal. I'm very curious what you guys think. So let me know if this is a good idea, a bad idea, what you think will happen. Will this take off? Will this be a trend? The thing I think about with K-pop specifically that's odd to me is the need for this because the creator does talk about, hey, we can do a lot of cool things that humans can't do, stunts that they can't do and stuff, but K-pop kind of pushes those boundaries already. K-pop world building is a thing. Fantastical music videos with larger-than-life sets, superpowers at play, very cinematic already. So this just feels kind of unnecessary. I also find interesting that this CEO said they actually might be freer in this case to speak out on public issues, on social issues, because they don't have to worry about the blowback. If you're a human, you can be very personally worried about reactions to what you say and post, but if you've got a virtual character, you can say something you know will stir up strong, negative backlash, and then walk away and go on with your day and not worry about the consequences. There's not going to be a real-world threat of someone coming to get you because of what you said. So that's an interesting thing I hadn't thought about before. As of recording time, the song, of course, called I'm Real, has over 570,000 hits on YouTube, and an interview with them has over 100,000. So the marketing, the interest, they're there to make this trend really take off. The question is, do we want it to? One way this trend has certainly become very real to some people. You may recall, I believe I talked about him back in the Miku episode of How to Stand, Akihiko Kondo, the Japanese man who married a hologram of Miku back in 2018, he has kind of seen his wife pass away. Quick refresher, Kondo said he was really in a dark place mentally, and watching Miku videos really helped him get out of a funk. Miku fandom kind of saved him. 
and he took that love to an extreme, getting married to Miku in 2018. This is not actually a legal thing, so the Japanese government does not recognize that as valid. Legally speaking, he's not married. But still, he held a small ceremony with 39 close friends, although his family didn't show up, and spent what's approximately in US dollars, $17,300 on the ceremony. What happened was, this specific Miku hologram is owned by Gatebox, a company that delivers AI services. So Miku's server that allowed her to run as a hologram, her processing server, was owned by Gatebox, who discontinued their AI service in 2020. So this Miku hologram is basically down. They had next-level AI technology, so originally Miku could respond to his voice. Now the projection, I guess, can still work, but doesn't answer to your voice anymore. So he quietly just has meals with his silent wife, which to me is really sad. That's something to worry about, too, with virtual stars, if they become more common. Let's not get too emotionally attached to them that we miss out on some real-world relationships. Let's switch gears and talk about drama in the movie producing world. A Chinese visual effects studio is being sued by two producers. Base Media, which has worked on Avengers, Iron Man, The Mandalorian, etc. They are a Beijing-based studio that now claims they have been scammed by two producers, leaving them in debt of over $234 million. There's this company called Remington Chase who promised to foot the bill for construction and operation costs of a new studio they were going to partner up to found in Malaysia. Base Media alleges that Remington Chase, as well as Kevin Robel, impersonated chief executives and forged documents in order to attain loans to build this studio. And with the forged signatures giving away certain property rights, Chase and Robel have been able to pocket the borrowed money while leaving Base Media to pick up the tab. And not telling Base Media, they had basically signed on partial ownership. Multiple lawsuits have now been filed against Base because people want their money back from the loans. So Base is suing and alleging embezzlement. In California federal court, the appeal was filed April 21st, saying, quote, they spent several years cultivating a business and personal relationship with BASE and its CEO by falsely representing to BASE their character, their contacts, and their intentions. They misappropriated BASE's name, forging loan agreements and investment agreements and signatures, creating fake BASE email accounts, opening bank accounts on behalf of fake BASE entities, and directing funds they were purportedly raising for base to themselves, unquote. We'll see how it plays out. I'll keep you posted. Let's end on a feel-good note, shall we? Ronald Bronstein, an award-winning conductor and Juilliard grad, founded the first orchestra in the world solely for those with mental illness to play in. The group is called Me Too Slash Orchestra. Not sure how they say it. Me Number Two Backslash Orchestra. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder back in 1981. This made it hard for him to get jobs, but he did have a special talent. He could memorize full symphonies in one night. He knew he was capable of something great, but his potential was not being met, was not being realized. So he decided to help himself and others and erase stigma surrounding mental health by co-founding this orchestra. He co-founded it back in 2011 with his wife, starting in New England, but now it's grown nationwide in the USA.
The orchestra currently has over 160 musicians in it. And I love this quote from him about the project so much. Quote, we aren't trying to be the greatest orchestra in the world. We're just trying to create a community, really something the world needs. Everyone really is able to shine if only people foster that talent. Really great to see. That is your roundup of the interesting happenings in the world of entertainment. Thank you guys so much for listening, as always, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!